My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you and walk through, walk through the scripture this morning. Do you, do you know what it feels like to be welcomed? It feels like to be welcomed. There, there is a comfort there. Uh, there is, there's a relationship. There's a sense that I'm supposed to be here. People expect me to be here. Um, perhaps you're welcomed at family gatherings. Perhaps that's a great place where you know that you are welcomed. Or among a really close group of friends. My hope would be that you feel that way on Sunday mornings. Or when you are at your life group. That's one of, that's one of the times I feel welcomed. That's Tuesday nights for me. I often feel welcomed on Tuesday nights. Because that's a group of people I've, to whom I belong. I belong to them. I'm with them. We share food with one another. We eat together. Uh, we talk through scripture. This, this same scripture we're going to talk through this morning, we'll talk through on Tuesday. We try to understand more fully what, what we're talking about. We try to understand the scripture more fully. And then we pray for one another and we check in with each other. How, how is that going? How are you doing? I'm still praying for you. I'll get a text or I'll, I'll call or they'll call me. I belong to that group. There's relationship there. I care about them, they care about me. I feel welcomed. And it is interesting how, how you notice the depth of something when it is taken away for a moment. Uh, this last Tuesday, I was on a work trip. So I was finishing up a training for work, and during life group, I was sitting at a gate in Phoenix thinking, they're eating food right now without me. And I was alone, and I, it had been a really, it was a bummer trip, I'll just be honest. I was sick for most of the time, and I, was, I felt isolated and alone, and at that gate, waiting for my flight late at night, I wanted to be where I felt welcomed, and I realized I feel welcomed at Life Group, and I'm not there right now, and that's where I want to be. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about being welcomed and what it means for a community to be Welcoming, and we are part of a community that is welcoming. For the past several months, we've been walking through Romans and, and particularly the application portion of the letter to the Romans. Paul, the writer of the letter, has had a specific rational argument and a proclamation of the gospel as good news about a God who has given himself to welcome two very different groups of people the Jews and the Gentiles, the people of Israel and the Gentiles, or Everybody else. And the, the gospel has brought those two, people, two groups of people together. And from chapter 12 on, we have been talking about the appropriate responses that should be evident in any community that is properly applying and understanding the gospel. If a community knows the gospel, here are the applications. Here's what that should look like. And that's what chapter 12 and on has been showing us. This, this portion of the letter has a particular focus on the hearts of those, those Jews and those Gentiles that were listening to that letter, that were hearing that letter being read to them. And it has a particular focus for us. Though we're many centuries removed, we still need to be reminded how the good news community ought to come together, how we ought to be unified, how we ought to be welcoming. Paul told us, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not pass judgment on the one who is weak and cannot do the things you feel like you can do to honor God. 
And do not pass judgment on the one who is strong and does things that you don't feel like you can do. And last week we were reminded to bear with the weaknesses of others. Shoulder each other's load. And this morning, Paul is going to work all this together, tie it all together, conclude this section, driving the idea of one community and finishing with a prayer for all of them. The final thrust is anchored in a request and the big The big idea about this passage is be a welcoming community because Christ welcomed you. Be a welcoming community because Christ welcomed you. And in welcoming you, Christ gives an example and fulfills his original promises. That's what we're going to see this morning. So turn to Romans 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul starts with the command, welcome one another. We've been talking for 15 chapters. Welcome one another. Accept one another. Invite one another in. Open the door. And in what way? As Christ has welcomed you. Christ is immediately set as the model of welcoming because one of the pivotal points of the gospel is that Christ died to reconcile enemies to himself. Romans earlier says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. One of the glorious aspects of the atonement, the death of Christ on the cross, is that Christ brought together God and his enemies. Those who were once enemies have been welcomed. If you see yourself, if you're sitting right now seeing yourself as distant from God or an enemy of God, that that may be true, but he has opened a door to welcome you. Through Christ, he wants to remedy your relationship with himself. And if you know Christ, you have been welcomed into relationship with God. And why? Why? Why does God do this? Why does God welcome us, enemies, Verse 7 says, for the glory of God. He welcomes us so that the weightiness of the majesty of God would be made evident. That the greatness of his character would be made known. That it would be obvious who God is and what he does. That the world may know that God is a glorious God. A good and gracious God who can welcome even enemies who can reconcile even enemies. That's good, isn't it? That's good. Paul continues, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul wants to keep talking about Jesus, which I'm totally fine with. The Christ. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant. Christ did not come on a horse, vanquishing foes and conquering nations, putting everything right in its place immediately. He came as a baby. He came as a baby that would grow up and wash the feet of others and walk with the downtrodden. He came not to be served, but to serve. A king immediately would usually come up and expect to be served, right? Not Christ. He came as a servant. And if, if you just read through the Gospels, we see this in action. Jesus is a servant. He is explaining truth to people that are slow to understand. They don't, they don't get it. And he walks with them and helps them understand. He talks with a woman by the well and helps her understand the Gospel. He gives lunch to those who have little, that don't even have food for lunch. He is walking with his friends, his disciples. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, not to the most important in society, though he, didn't, he wouldn't shy away from doing so, but to the ignored and the confused and the meek and the mourning. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount. He turns everything on its head. In order to welcome us, he became a servant. What a great way to welcome someone. If you just start serving someone, they're going to feel welcome. Serve those whom you wish to welcome. And he did that, and some rejected him, but he went on welcoming nonetheless. He didn't stop. And why did he do that? Paul explains this, to show God's truthfulness. Jesus came as a servant in order to, in person, in the flesh, physically proclaim that God is not a liar. That when God makes a promise, no matter how long ago it was, He is going to keep the promise. And God made promises to the patriarchs, that's what Paul's referring to, to these, these ancestors of the Jewish people, to Isaac and to Abraham. Abraham, the random guy pulled from the region that is now Iraq, whom God called and said, go to this land that I will show you and I promise you that I will make you a great nation. You, one guy, will be a great nation and through you, all families of all the world will be blessed. And I, Yahweh, will be your God and you will be my people. That's a big promise. That's a big promise. Isaac, his son, was told that God would multiply his offspring and in his offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed. These were the people of the circumcision, the people that Paul is referring to, a people that were markedly different than those around them who followed the God of Abraham and Isaac, Yahweh. And Christ, a great, 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 add some more greats, grandson of Abraham came as a servant to these people to show that God's truthfulness was unwavering. It's been a long time since that promise was made, but I will still fulfill that promise. I will still confirm this promise. I will still be faithful. His arrival shows God's truthfulness in two ways. His arrival confirmed the promises given to his ancestors. I will make you a great people, and they were a great people. 
Abraham was an old man when God gave him that promise. And he had a kid. And there were more and more and more descendants. And there was a great people that Jesus came to serve. He was their God and did not leave him, leave them. And in a second way, through them all nations will be blessed. Through the coming of Jesus, even the Gentiles, even every other nation had reason to glorify God for his mercy. Even the Gentiles experienced the mercy of God, the welcoming of God because of the arrival of Jesus, the servant. Jesus' service confirmed a long-offered promise and brought in the Gentiles as well. Jesus' service welcomed the Gentiles as well, welcomed you as well. Christ was a servant to confirm the promises and to show the Gentiles mercy. And here's where this passage gets quite interesting. If you're just looking at it, the formatting gets a little bit different, right? Because Paul will use four passages from the Old Testament to support his point that these two confirmations, the promise of the patriarchs and the mercy to the Gentiles, these two ideas have been a single idea since the very beginning. This has always been the plan. Confirmation of the promises to the patriarchs and mercy to the Gentiles. He's going to call Bible to support his assertions about Jesus. This is a good way to go, right? You go to the Bible. So in, in continuing in verse 9, Paul says, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul starts with a psalm. Psalm 18. This is one of the songs of David. One of the tunes of David. Where he is praising God because God has given David great victory. Among his enemies, he was being persecuted and fought and God gave him victory. Some of these enemies were even Gentiles, other nations. And at the end of this long song, King David says, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. At the very least, this is a support that one of Israel would be in the midst of the Gentiles and would be singing praises to God. That's That's at least interesting that one of Israel would be sitting amongst the Gentiles because usually they separated themselves, right? We are going to be here. We're going to be distinct. We are going to be, it's going to be obvious that we follow God. We follow Yahweh and all the other nations. That's why the word nations and Gentiles, it's the same word. Everybody else is the Gentiles. We're not going to be with them. So to be in the midst of the Gentiles and singing praise is something different already something interesting, something that's pointing towards something bigger. But there's also a picture here of a future king. David is a king, a king of Israel, who was given a promise from God, one of your sons will be a king forever. And that king will be a son to me. It's going to be a different type of relationship. I'm going to give you a great promise. You will have a descendant on the throne forever, and he will be a son to me. This son of David is is the Messiah for whom Israel longed. We're waiting for the son of David. We are waiting for the king that will sit on the throne forever and be the good and faithful king. And in the Psalms, often when David is mentioned, there's often a future emphasis placed in the lyrics that also point not just to David, but the son of David. The last verse of this particular song says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to to David and his offspring forever. 
It's as though David is singing, you do great things, God, and one of them is to give love, covenant love, promising love to my offspring forever. My ancestor who will be king and your son, and that king will sing among the Gentiles because your promise will include them. We've been waiting for that servant. Israel has been waiting for that servant. The Gentiles have been waiting for that servant. And this verse is proof that we've been waiting for a long time. Paul continues with the next three verses. But these next three verses, Paul takes from three portions of the Hebrew Bible. Now we call, we call the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament, right? That's what we, we Gentiles, that's what we, we call the Old Testament. We in the West. But the Hebrews, the Jews, they had three parts to their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. There's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketubim. These three sections of scripture. That's how they would break it up. The Torah, you know, you, know, you, you probably know it as the Pentateuch, the five books of the, the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This, this is the place where Moses lays out the law. It's super important. The Nevi'im contains all the books of the prophets. And another word for prophets, Nevi'im. Pretty simple. The Torah and the Nevi'im. And the Ketuvim, which means the writings contains the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job and Ezra and Nehemiah and everything else that doesn't fit in those first two categories. A shorthand to say Old Testament scriptures or Hebrew Bible or Jewish scriptures would be to say the law and the prophets. That includes everything. Jesus said this a lot when he was pointing to the, the whole book. When he's saying, I fulfill this whole book, the, the law and the prophets. Or when I'm summarizing the whole book, the law and the prophets. He does this once when, when they say, what are, the, what are the great commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole book, all of Jewish scripture rests on these two ideas. So when you pull from these three sections, you are saying, this is, this is in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. And you're also giving a nod to the Jews who are, who are listening to this letter, who know their Bibles, and you're helping them that understand that this is part of the entire story. This is not just a little section at the end. This is not just a, a little portion in one random spot. This is part of the whole book. So they're listening, they're hearing this in the letter. And the Gentiles are part of that community and they can hear that the plan has always been to include them. So we're going to see Paul use one from each of these sections. So Paul continues from the Torah and specifically for us Gentiles, it's from Deuteronomy. And in verse 10, he says, And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is a call to the Gentiles specifically Gentiles, rejoice. Worship with the people of God. This line is found at the end of the Song of Moses to the people of Israel. He had spent a long time, and if you were to read through um, the, the four and last books of the Torah, he, he spends a long time going over Israel's potential for blessing if they follow God and walk with his plans. And also, their potential for curses if they do not follow God. If you do not obey, this is what could happen. This is what will happen. 
And then he sings this song over them. And it's truly sad because he sings lines that point to a future of disobedience, not obedience. A future of alienation from God, not walking with God. Moses knows that the people of God who he has just given the plan and the law to, this people of God does not plan to walk with God. And it is evident from the beginning that Israel will need a servant to welcome them back. It's, just, it's almost a, it's a sad moment for Moses to sing this song and point to what, it, what proves to be the case. And even in this moment, there's a glimmer of future unity with all people, not just with Israel, but with all people. In the middle of this song, a glimmer of future joy as Moses sings, Rejoice, O Gentiles, O nations, all nations, with his people, with the people of God. Some of the last words of Moses are that the Gentiles, the nations, everyone else will rejoice with the people of God. God would confirm his promises. All nations will be blessed. All nations would experience joy together. This has been part of the plan since the beginning. Paul continues, and again, and this is from the Kethuvim, from the, from the Psalms. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is the call to the Gentiles to praise the Lord. And this is in the middle of the hymn book of Israel. The Psalms is the hymn book of Israel. These are the songs we sing and worship to God because we have worship that is different than all the other nations. And in the middle of their songbook is a call to the Gentiles, praise the Lord. Let all peoples extol him. Let all peoples bless him. And if you were to turn to Psalm 17, you don't need to. It's not that long. I'll read it all to you. The rest of the song says, For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It has been the plan since the beginning that you bunch of Gentiles be called to praise the Lord like we have this very morning for his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his graciousness and his justice. A God whom the Israelites would have thought is theirs and theirs alone the God Yahweh, we have been welcomed and invited to praise the Lord, to praise Yahweh. This has been part of the plan since the beginning. We would be welcomed together. In verse 12, and again, and this is from the Nevi'im, Isaiah, a prophet, says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Paul pulls this small portion out of a wonderful passage of Isaiah. The root of Jesse. How great is that? See, none of you know because you're a bunch of Gentiles. But Paul is quoting this to some Gentiles and to some Jews, and the Jews knew their Jewish Bible. And if you quote a little passage in your letter, it's assumed, I know the whole chapter. And they knew, the Jews heard this, the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse will come. They, they knew, this is from the Nevi'im. This is from Isaiah. And they knew this chapter, and they longed for this chapter to be, to be fulfilled, to be true. They needed the truth in this chapter. 
If I put a seed in the ground, what happens? It grows. And if that seed is the seed of a tree, it gets big and strong. And in the ground, I have roots that run deep, right? Big and strong and roots in the ground ready to grow. All the way back, we started with a seed. God called Abraham. One of, the, one of the other ways the word seed is translated is offspring. Abraham, in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. We have a seed. A seed is put in the ground. That seed grows. Isaac, in, you, in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's growing. David, your offspring, your seed will be a king forever. Who knows the name of David's dads? Who, who's, who knows the name of David's dad? Jesse. The root of Jesse. The son of David. And the Jews knew all of this. They know this chapter. They know that, Israel, that Isaiah was writing to a sad and broken people. David was a long dead king. And his tree seems to have been chopped down. It was growing. It was go- we were going to have a big kingdom there was branches and fruit and it was good and now it's chopped down what do we do where is our hope where is our king how will god confirm his promises if the tree is chopped down and isaiah says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit this will all grow again And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, rest upon this branch. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. See, the Jews heard this and they knew when the root of Jesse shows up and reigns and judges, even the ferocious animals are made new. And everyone will know who the Lord is. Like the water covers the oceans will be the knowledge of the Lord. And his rule will be just and righteous and good and wise and delightful. Can you see how the Jews would long for this and put their hope in this? We want the root of Jesse. 
And the root of Jesse, the son of David, will come and arise to rule the Gentiles. Yes, but what does Isaiah say? The, the Jews and the Gentiles. What does this mean? It means that the plan all along has been that the king of the Jews is the king of the Gentiles. The hope of the Jews is the hope of the Gentiles. Amen? And we hope for the day when the root of Jesse, the son of David, King Jesus himself, will rule and reign. That's what we wait for. That's what we hope for. Because his rule is not cruel and brutal, but a welcoming rule. We know this king. This King Jesus is servant Jesus. This Jesus is the one who reconciled you, an enemy, to God. This is the one who welcomed you, a Gentile, into the plan to bless all the nations through Jesus. And that is good news. I don't have to be born into this. I don't have to have, I don't have to be a privileged one. I can be a stranger because God is a welcoming God. For all of history, witnessed in all of Scripture, God is a welcoming God that welcomes the stranger in. And that is true. And that is our hope. And it has been confirmed in Christ. How does that sound? That's good. And that is why Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You are part of a welcomed community. You have been welcomed by the benevolent servant who will fully and completely rule all. Welcome like Christ has welcomed you. How? How do we do this? How do we welcome? We are very skilled at welcoming our friends, right? Think of this place. I come to church in the morning. I see my friend. I will make sure I go to them and say good morning. I might give them a hug. I'm glad you are here. How are you? And I mean it. I mean it when I say that, right? How are you? I actually want to know. Maybe we grab lunch after church. Perhaps they're in our life group. If they're not in the life group, I'm for sure going to invite them into my life group because they're my friend. We keep in communication. We pray for them. We text to follow up about those needs we know they have. We call and ask how the week is going. We weep with them. We laugh with them. We bear their burdens. We share the load of their weaknesses. We put it on our shoulders as well. We make sure they know and understand deep in their bones that they are welcome with me. We will not let them be mistaken. We make sure of it. That is the how. We know how. We welcome our friends all the time. We know how to do this. Whom ought we to welcome? Who is your brother or sister in Christ? And who is your neighbor? Those are the two sets of people we welcome. The first, if they're in this community, then you welcome them. It's easy to welcome a friend, but we all have people that we're going to avoid. They think differently than me. They don't like the things I like. They have different opinions about what honors God. We disagree about Stuff. They are weak, they are strong, whatever. You don't just welcome those that are easy to welcome. You welcome those Christ has welcomed as well. 
So welcome one another. Start small and practice. Walk up. Good morning. I'm glad to see you. How was your week? And then actually listen. It feels good to be asked that question and someone actually listen, right? That's a welcoming gesture. The second, who is your neighbor? We each have different people who have been put in our paths and we can welcome them and be hospitable to them. Remember that word hospitable or hospitality means working to make a stranger a friend. We were enemies of God and Christ welcomed us into friendship. We can engage a neighbor in a welcoming way. That could be stopping and talking with a neighbor across the street. Do you need help with anything? Yeah, I need help getting my, my trash cans to the, to the front because it's just really hard and I don't know how to do it. It's, uh, I, I'm weak, I can't do it. Maybe that's it. This can be inviting a coworker to lunch and picking up the tab. Can I buy you a sandwich? It's pretty welcoming. This could be an inviting an, an acquaintance on the softball team with you or to join a hobby with you. How will you welcome someone? You know how to welcome people. How will you make strangers friends? We welcome because we have been welcomed and have been given a hope. A hope in something firm and real. A king that will return and rule well and justly and rightly. And we want to welcome others into that hope. Paul ends with a prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God is the origin and object of hope for the welcomed community, for us. God fills us with a reason to hope as we can anchor our hope on his character and on his return to restore and rule. And God can fill us with joy and peace. Joy in the excitement of being welcomed. There's joy there, right? I am welcomed into God's family. I have joy because of that. And joy because of how, knowing how good it will be to live and rest with God in a new and unbroken heaven and earth. There's joy there. And God can give us peace rooted in the fact that God has made promises before and has confirmed them by welcoming you and welcoming me. There's peace there. I have a relationship with God and confidence in His character because He has proved faithful to His promises. And God gives us the means of hope by the power of the Spirit. We need the Spirit to empower us to hope and attach our assurance to the proper place, the faithfulness of God. Hope is not something I conjure up or work up in myself. I gain proper expectation and assurance of the future by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul is praying. That is why he is asking that God would do the work to bring joy and peace and hope. Paul prayed for his friends. Let me pray this for you as well. God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace in believing. As we understand more what you have done and who you are, may our joy increase and our peace increase. Holy Spirit, empower us to be a hopeful people. Fix our eyes and expectation 
on the return of Jesus and his restoring grace and let us abound in hope for his return. Let us not waver in that hope. Help us to understand deep in our bones that we are welcomed by the God of the universe. Not as an afterthought, not as an add-on, but as part of the plan from the very beginning since the foundation of the world. And let our gratitude for being welcomed fuel our ability to welcome others, to welcome them well. Thank you for welcoming us and let us, a bunch of Gentiles, rejoice as we sing. Amen. Nice. Brilliant. Well, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be with you and to walk with you through some more of Romans 15. Um, it's, it's a good scripture, and I'm excited for us to make our way through it this morning. Do you know what it is, it is like to feel welcomed? There is a, there's a comfort there when you feel welcomed. There is... There's relationship, there's a sense of, I'm supposed to be here, and it's okay that I'm here, and it's good that I'm here, I'm welcomed. Perhaps perhaps when you're at a family gathering, uh, maybe around the holidays, that is when you feel welcomed. Uh, you're with your family, they want you to be there, you want to be there, um, that, that could be a welcoming spot for you. Or maybe, maybe it's with a group of close friends, and these are just the best friends, and when you're together, this is a place where you feel welcomed, invited, you belong. I would hope that Sunday mornings is a place that feels like that. Um, I would hope that uh, Life Group is a place that feels like that. Life Group is a place that feels like that for me. Uh, we meet on Tuesday nights and a group, we're a group of people that we get together and we share food together and we eat food together. And we, we talk through scripture, we'll talk about this passage on Tuesday and we'll try to understand it more and apply it and how does this fit into my life and we ask hard questions and try to figure it out and we pray for one another and we, I've shared prayer requests that are real and vulnerable and people have prayed for me and then they follow up, how is that thing going and they text me or they call me, I feel as though I belong in that place, I feel welcomed there, they care about me, I care about them. And it's interesting how, how often you notice the depth of something once you don't have it for a moment. Um, this last Tuesday, I was not at Life Group. I was in Phoenix um, for a work, a work training. And while everyone was eating food and talking about Scripture and praying for each other, I was in a gate waiting for my flight. And it was really dumb. <laughs> I didn't want to be there. Um, it had been a really poor... Work trip, I was sick most of the time, and it, would, it was taxing and difficult, and I felt isolated and alone, and if you're sitting by yourself at an airport gate, those, those are not the best places either. And I was remembering, there's a place where I am welcomed, and I want to be there, and I'm not there right now. I want to be where I'm welcome, and I want to be with the community that loves me and cares about me. Do you know what it is like to feel welcome? Do you know a community like that, to be in a community perhaps like this. For the past several months, we've been walking through the application portion of the letter to the Romans. Paul, the writer of this letter, had a specific 
rational argument that he had walked through in chapters 1 through 12. And it had been a specific proclamation of the gospel as good news about a God who has given himself to welcome two very different types, two very different groups of people. The people of Israel and the nations, otherwise known as everybody else. And these two people have been brought together because of the gospel. From chapter 12 on, Paul and we have been talking about the appropriate responses that should be evident in any community that is properly applying and understanding the beginning of the letter, the beginning of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel. This portion of the letter, and imagine, imagine a time like this where people came for a scheduled gathering. This letter would have been read in a place like this. All right, it's time to read the letter we received from Paul last week. And this portion of the letter would have had, would have had particular focus into the hearts of those listening to the letter. They would have been hearing, that, that's how that can apply to my life tomorrow. I know that that's true. And this letter has particular focus for us, even though we're hundreds of years re- removed from when this letter was written. We still need to be reminded how the Good News community ought to come together, ought to be unified, ought to be together. Paul has told us since chapter 12 to love one another with a brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. Do not pass judgment on the one who is weak and cannot do the things you feel you are free to do. And do not pass judgment on the one who is strong and seems to be able to do things that you don't think you can do. And last week, Taylor reminded us we are to bear with the weaknesses of others, shoulder the burden of the other. And this morning, Paul is working to tie all this together and driving the idea that we are one community and he finishes with a prayer for all of them to whom he writes this letter. The final thrust is anchored in a, in a request. So this big idea, and now my life group's going to write down their stuff because I said big idea. Um, the big idea is be a welcoming community because Christ has welcomed you. Be a welcoming community because Christ has welcomed you. And in welcoming you, Christ gives us an example and fulfills his original promises. That's what we're going to learn this morning. Let's read from chapter 15, verse 7. Paul continues with his letter. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So Paul continues, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul starts with a command as he's tying this all together. Welcome one another. Accept one another. Invite one another in. Open the door. And in what way? As Christ has welcomed you. Christ is immediately set up as the model of welcoming. 
Because one of the pivotal points of the gospel is that Christ died to reconcile enemies to himself. Earlier in Romans, Paul says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. One of the glorious aspects of the atonement, the death of Christ on the cross, is that Christ brought together God and his enemies. Those who were once enemies have been welcomed. If you're sitting there this morning and you see yourself as distant from God, an enemy of God, that that may be true, but he has opened a door to welcome you. Through Christ, he wants to remedy your relationship with himself. He wants to bring you back together. And why? Why does he do this? Why does Christ do this? Why does God welcome us for the glory of God? That's what Paul says, for the glory of God, that the weightiness of the majesty of God would be made evident and obvious, that the greatness of the character of God would be made known, that the world may know that God is a glorious God, a good God, a gracious God who can welcome even enemies, who can reconcile even enemies. That's good, right? That's good. He continues, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul says Christ is a servant. He wants to keep talking about Jesus and I'm, I'm good with that. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant. Christ did not come on a horse with a sword, vanquishing foes, conquering nations, He came as a baby. He came as a baby that would grow up and wash others' feet. He would walk with the downtrodden. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came as a servant. And if you just read through the Gospels, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you see this. Jesus is explaining truth to people that are slow to understand, that don't get it right away. He's helping them. He's serving them. He is talking to a woman at a well and wants her to understand that the gift of life, the gift of the water of life comes through Jesus. You see him giving lunch to people that don't have food for lunch, just serving them. He is walking with his friends, his disciples. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom, not just to the most important in society, though he wouldn't shy away from doing so, but to the ignored and the confused and the meek In the morning, just look at the Sermon on the Mount. He turns everything upside down. I'm here to serve. And the gospel is going to be good for those that are usually ignored and rejected. And why why is Christ the servant? Why does Christ even show up to show God's truthfulness in order to, in person, in the flesh, physically proclaim that God is not a liar? That when God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And God made promises to the patriarchs. This is referring to the fathers of the nation of Israel. He's referring to the ancestors of the people of Israel. Isaac and Abraham. Abraham, that random guy from the region of Iraq that God took and said, I'm going to send you to a place that I'm going to show you. And though you're an old, old, old man with no kids... I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
And Yahweh, He will be your God and you will be His people. That's a big promise. Isaac, his son, was told that God would multiply his offspring and in his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a big promise. These are the people of the circumcision, a people that were markedly different than those around them and who followed the God of Abraham and Isaac, Yahweh, the God Yahweh. And Christ arrives as a servant and arrives as a great, 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 add some more greats, grandson of Abraham and came as a servant to those people to show that God's truthfulness was unwavering. It doesn't change. And his arrival showed God's truthfulness in two ways. His arrival confirmed the promises given to his ancestors. I will make you a great people. And they were a great people. He was their God. He did not leave them. He showed up for them. And in the second way, through them, all nations will be blessed. Through the coming of Jesus, even the Gentiles had reason to glorify God for his mercy. And I'm talking about us. I don't know if you're aware of that. You're a Gentile. You are everybody else. I am everybody else. And we have been included in the mercy of God and the welcoming of God because of the arrival of Jesus. Jesus' service confirmed a long-offered promise and brought in the Gentiles as well. Jesus' service welcomed the Gentiles as well. And here's where this passage gets quite interesting. Paul is going to use four passages from the Old Testament, from the the back two-thirds of your Bible, to support this point that these two confirmations, the promises of the patriarchs and the mercy to the Gentiles, that these two ideas have always been a single idea. They're one idea. He's going to quote Bible to support his assertions about what Jesus is doing. That's a good idea, right? We quote Bible when we talk about Jesus. So the, the end of 9, Paul continues, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul starts by referencing a psalm, Psalm 18. This is one of the songs of David, one of the tunes, one of the uh, poems of David, where he is praising God because he has given David victory among his enemies. Some of those enemies were Gentiles even. And at the end of this song, King David says, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. At very least, the smallest possibility, at very least this is to support the fact that one of Israel would be in the midst of the Gentiles and he would be singing praises to God. That's, that's the very least. And that's possible because Israel tended to separate themselves. We are different from everybody else. That's why the, the word, the Hebrew word for nations and, and what would be translated Gentiles, they're just the same word. There's the nations and the Gentiles, everybody else and Israel. So they would naturally be separate from the Gentiles. So for someone, for someone from Israel to be singing in the midst of the Gentiles is a pretty big deal. Why would we do that? Why would we, why would we sing with them? Why would we sing around them? But there's also a picture here of the future king as well. David is a king who was given a promise from God. God told him, one of your sons will be king forever and he will be a son to me. Sounds like Jesus, right? David said, God tells David, you are going to have a descendant who will sit on the throne forever and he will be a son to me. 
The son of David is the Messiah for whom Israel longed. And in the Psalms, when David is mentioned, there is often a future emphasis placed in the lyrics that also point to the son of David. Not just David, but the son of David, the future king. The last verse of this particular song says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast or covenant or promising love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. It's as though David is singing, you do great things, God, and one of them is to give love, covenant love, promising love to my offspring, my descendants forever. My ancestor who will, or my descendant who will be king and your son, that king will sing among the Gentiles because your promise will include them. We have been waiting, the Gentiles have been waiting, the Jews have been waiting for that servant and this verse is proof that that waiting has been happening for a long, long time. The next three verses, Paul takes, um, he takes from each of the three portions of the Hebrew Bible. So when we in the West, the Gentiles, we're the Gentiles, when we talk about the Old Testament, we hold up about two-thirds of our Bible and we say, this is the Old Testament. Right? That's how we refer to it. We have the New Testament, and this is the Old Testament. And that's not how the Hebrews talked about it. They talked about the, the Hebrew Scriptures, and they talked about three categories. There was the Torah, and that was where the law resided. The first five books of the Bible. You, you know them as the Pentateuch, maybe. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of Moses, where Moses gave the law to the people. Torah means law. And that is the first section of the Hebrew Scriptures. The second is the Nevi'im. And the Nevi'im, that means prophets. So in the section of the Nevi'im are all the prophets. So you have all the list of the people who spoke on God's behalf to the people of Israel. And the third section is the Ketuvim, which means the writings. So the writings that do not fit in these two categories, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Ezra, Nehemiah, everything else fits in that category. And this is a shorthand way to say the, the, the whole Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Jesus would often say the Law and the Prophets. If you said the Law and the Prophets, that means the whole book, the whole Hebrew Scriptures I'm referring to right now. Jesus said this a lot because he would point to the fulfillment of the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures or he would point to... Um, summarize or support the whole book. In, in one particular section, someone comes up to Jesus and says, what are the two most, what's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's saying the Hebrew scriptures, all of it. The whole book. And when you pull from these three sections, you're saying this is the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. This is not a little portion that happened to make it into a footnote. We're talking about the whole book. So Paul is using this. He's going to pull from each of the three sections and he's giving a nod to the Jews who know their Hebrew Bibles and helping them to understand this is, the part, this is part of the entire story. This is not an afterthought. This is not a new idea. This is not something we added later. This is part of the story. And the Jews will hear that and understand that. He took it from each of the sections. And the Gentiles, listening along, they hear that the plan has always included them. 
It's always included us. That's what they're going to hear. That's what the Jews are going to hear. So Paul continues from the Torah and specifically for us Gentiles, Deuteronomy. And again, this is verse 10. Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is a call to the Gentiles specifically to worship with the people of God. This line is found at the end of the song of Moses to the people of Israel. He had spent a long time, and if you were to read the end of the Torah, he had spent a long time going over their potential for blessing if they follow God and his plans and a potential for curses if they do not follow God and do not walk with him. And then he sings a song over, him, over them, and this is truly sad because he sings lines that point to a future not of obedience but disobedience. A future of alienation from God, not walking with God. Moses knows that the people of God do not plan to walk with God. And it is evident from the very beginning that Israel will need a servant to bring them back. But even in, in this sad moment, in this sad song, there's a glimmer of future unity for all people. A glimmer of future joy for all people. Moses sings, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Some of the last words of Moses before he dies are that the Gentiles, the nations, would rejoice with the people of God. God would confirm his promises. All nations would be blessed. All nations would experience joy together. That's cool stuff. And again, verse 11 from the Ketuvim, from the Psalms, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is a call to the Gentiles, again, specifically to praise the Lord. And it sits in the middle of the Jewish hymn book. These are the songs they would sing in their services. That's what the Psalms are. And in the middle of their hymn book is a call to the Gentiles to praise the Lord. The rest of the song says, For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. In Hebrew, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a lesson. There you go. It has been in the plan since the beginning that you, bunch of Gentiles, be called to praise the Lord like we have this very morning for his steadfast love and faithfulness. A God whom the Israelites would have thought is theirs and theirs alone. He is our God, the God Yahweh. We have been welcomed and invited to praise Yahweh, to praise the Lord. This has been part of the plan since the beginning. You sitting here worshiping Yahweh has been the plan since the beginning. We would be welcomed together. And in verse 12, and again, this is from the Nevi'im, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul pulls the small portion out of a wonderful passage in Isaiah. The root of Jesse. How great is that? See, no one knows because we're all a bunch of Gentiles. The root of Jesse. This is fantastic. Paul is quoting this to some Gentiles and to some Jews, and the Jews knew their Jewish Bibles. They knew that this, he's, he's quoting from the Nevi'im. And they knew this chapter. And they longed for the fulfillment of this chapter. They needed the truth in this chapter. 
If I put a seed in the ground, what happens? Something grows. And if it's a tree, it's something big. Right? There's branches and there's fruit and there's limbs. And if it's a big tree, the roots go deep in the ground and it's sustaining. All the way back, we started with a seed. The same word, seed, is often translated offspring. So God talking to Abraham, Hey Abraham, through your offspring, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Isaac, through your offspring, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Hey David, one of your offspring, one of your seed will be king forever and he will be a son to me. Who knows the name of David's dad? Jesse. The root of Jesse. The son of David. These refer to the same person. And the Jews knew all of this and they're hearing this. They know this chapter. They know that Isaiah is writing to a sad and broken people. David was a long dead king. And his tree seems to be chopped down. There, are no, there is nothing growing anymore. There is no fruit anymore. Where is our hope? Where is our king? How will God confirm his promises? Because he promised us these things. And Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This will all grow again, he says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Isaiah says when the root of Jesse shows up and reigns and judges and rules, even the ferocious animals that you would never have your babies next to, they will be made new. And everyone will know who the Lord is. As the water covers the ocean, that's how the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. And His rule will be just and righteous and good and wise and delightful. Can you see how the Jews would long for this and put their hope in this? And the root of Jesse, the son of David, will come and arise to rule the Gentiles. What does this mean? It means that the plan all along would be that the king of the Jews is the king of the Gentiles. Amen? Amen. That the hope of the Jews is the hope of the Gentiles. Jesus is our hope. And we hope, along with the Jews, 
when the root of Jesse, the son of David, King Jesus himself, will rule and reign. Amen? Because his rule is not a cruel and brutal rule, but a welcoming rule. Because we know this king. We know this King Jesus. King Jesus is servant Jesus. This Jesus is the one who reconciled you, who reconciled me, an enemy, to God. This is the one who welcomed you, a Gentile, into a plan to bless all the nations through Jesus. And that is good news. I don't have to be born into this. I don't have to have a privileged station in life. I can be a stranger because God is a welcoming God. And for all of history, witnessed in all of Scripture, God is a welcoming God that welcomes the stranger in. And that is true, and that is our hope, and it has been confirmed, the promises have been confirmed in Christ. Does that sound pretty good? Sounds good. And here's why Paul says in verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You all are part of a welcomed community. You have been welcomed by a benevolent servant king who will fully and completely rule all. Welcome like Christ has welcomed you. How do we do this? We are very skilled at welcoming our friends, right? You know how to welcome your friends. Think of this, this place. You see a friend. I will make sure I go to them. I will say good morning to them. I'm glad you are here. How are you? And I actually care. I actually listen. Maybe we grab lunch after church together. Perhaps they're in your life group. If they're not in the life group, you're definitely inviting them to your life group because they're your friend. You keep in communication You pray for them. You text to follow up how things are going. You call them to see how things are. You bear their burdens. You laugh when they laugh. You weep when they weep. You share the load of their weaknesses. You make sure they know and understand deep in their bones that they are welcomed with you. You will not let them be uncertain about that. That's how. We know how. We know how to welcome people. We know how to welcome our friends. Whom ought we to welcome? Who is your brother or sister in Christ? Who is your neighbor? That's who we welcome. The first in the community. If Christ has welcomed them, you welcome them. It's easy to welcome a friend, but we all have people we tend to avoid because they're a little bit different than us. They think a little differently than I do. They have different opinions about some things than me. We disagree about some stuff. They are weak. I am, they are strong. Vice versa. I tend to avoid. You don't just welcome those that are easy to welcome. You welcome those who Christ has welcomed as well. Welcome one another. Start small. Practice this morning even. Good morning. I'm glad to see you. How are you? And then actually listen. I know that's, I feel welcomed when someone actually wants to listen to me, actually cares about how difficult or good my week was. The second, who is your neighbor? We each have different people who have been put in our paths and we can welcome them and be hospitable to them. Remember what that word hospitable means, to make a stranger a friend. 
we were enemies of God and God welcomed us into friendship, we can welcome others into friendship. You can engage a neighbor in a welcoming way. That could just be stopping and talking with them. Hey, how are you doing? Do you need help with anything? I live right across the street. That could be a neighbor that says, I just need help getting my garbage can to the side of the road. I'm not, it's difficult for me and I just need some help. I would love to do that. That's welcoming. That can be inviting a coworker to lunch and picking up the tab for their Reuben sandwich. I want to buy your sandwich. That could be inviting an acquaintance onto the softball team with you or some other hobby that you do. Do you want to do this thing with me? That's welcoming. How will you welcome someone? How will you make strangers friends? You guys know how to welcome. Go welcome someone. We welcome because we have been welcomed and have been given a hope, a hope in something firm and real, a king that will return and rule well and justly and rightly. We want to welcome others into that hope. Paul ends with a prayer in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God is the origin and object of hope, of our hope for the welcomed community. God fills us with a reason to hope as we can anchor our hope on his character and on his return to restore and rule. And God can fill us with joy and peace, joy in the excitement of being welcomed. There's joy there, right? I get to be welcomed into God's family. I used to be an enemy and now I am part of God's family. There's joy there. And I, get, I, I can receive joy realizing that it's going to be good to live and rest with God in a new and unbroken heaven and earth. There's joy there. And there's peace rooted in the fact that God has made promises before and has confirmed them by welcoming me and welcoming you. I can trust him. I can have peace that he will do what he says he will do. God gives us the means of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to empower us to hope and attach our assurance to the proper place, to the faithfulness of God. Hope is not something I conjure up in myself or I work up in myself or I positively think. I gain proper expectation and assurance of the true future by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul is praying. He is praying that God would do the work to bring joy and peace and hope for his friends to whom he wrote this letter. Paul prayed this for his friends. Let me pray this for you. God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace in believing. As we understand more what you have done and who you are, may our joy increase and our peace increase. Holy Spirit, empower us to be a hopeful people. Fix our eyes and expectations on the return of Jesus and his restoring grace and let us abound in hope for his return. Let us not waver. Give us extreme confidence that you will do what you say you will do. Help us to understand deep in our bones that we are welcomed by the God of the universe, by the King of the universe, not as an afterthought, but as part of the plan since the foundation of the world. And let our gratitude for being welcomed fuel our ability to welcome others well. Thank you for welcoming us and let us, a bunch of Gentiles in this room, 
rejoice as we sing. Amen.